This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your hosts, Radio Joe Hughes and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus, episode 681. This week, we welcome Lisa White, Associate Director at the Passive House Institute U.S., FIAS, this is uh this show is going to be a great follow up to our recent discussions about the Internet of Things, sensors, and the Electrify Everything moment uh, movement. Uh, Lisa did a well received presentation at summer camp with thoughtful insights on how changes to the grid can be coordinated with changes in buildings and take advantage of the moment. So before we get started, let's thank our sponsors. They're the reason we can continue doing the show. And remember, we continue the discussion after the show at afterthoughts.iaqradio.com, sponsored by First On Site. Our marquee sponsor is First On Site at firstonsite.com. Our association sponsors are the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists, ACGIH.org, the American Industrial Hygiene Association, AIHA. Org. The Cleaning Industry Research Institute, CIRIScience.org. The Institute for Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification, IICRC.org. Industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories, AEMLINC.com. Particles Plus, ParticlesPlus.com. TSI Inc., TSI.com. Sunbelt Rentals, sunbeltrentals.com. April Air, April, A-I-R-E.com. Healthy Indoors Magazine, healthyindoors.com. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnick at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man. Hello, everyone. I'm sorry to report that no one identified Dale Kleist as the Ohio State grad student whose accidental discovery was a breakthrough in making fiberglass, which is our most popular insulating material. The IQ Radio trivia question for today, November 11, 2022, has been sponsored by TSI Inc., an industry leader in the precision instrumentation of monitoring indoor air. Learn how to expand your IQ investigations at TSI.com. Here's today's IQ radio trivia question. Name the voluntary standard used in Switzerland for reducing a property's eco footprint. Back to you, Joe. Okay. Lisa White is the associate director and technical lead for FIAS Institute or the Passive House Institute USA, US. Uh, Ms. White has been with FIAS since 2012. She led the building certification review team for seven years and is an instructor for the certified Passive House consultant training and the WUFI Passive Energy Modeling Software training. She also has a degree in environmental sustainability with a minor in architecture from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and a master's in energy engineering from the University of Illinois at Chicago. Welcome to IAQ Radio, Lisa. Thank you so much, Joe. It's great to have you. You came to my attention with when I saw that you were speaking at summer camp. I was hoping to see you there, but unfortunately, uh, my ride got COVID or his wife got COVID and we didn't want to take the chance. So I didn't make it. But uh, anyway, tell us a little bit about Theus. We have never done a show 
on Passive House. So if you could tell us a little bit about the organization and your position. Sure. So to start, um, FIAS is a, a 501c3 nonprofit uh, whose mission is really that every building supports the health of people in the planet. And we're trying to do this by making high-performance passive building mainstream. Uh, so the organization itself is, um, we do training. We train professionals, architects, engineers, builders, uh, commissioning specialists. Uh, we certify buildings and set building performance standards, which is kind of the passive building standards, passive house standards. Um, and we also certify components that go into buildings. So like windows, or we certify their data, windows, ventilation equipment, panels, things like that. Uh, we also have uh, research groups. So we're um, kind of research and policy initiatives where we kind of key into other, other things happening across the US or around the world. And we have a membership organization called the FIAS Alliance. So we're, we're kind of a split in terms of our, our staff, a lot of our staff is technical staff and that does project certification reviews. We, we set that standard for building performance and people will submit their projects trying to achieve certification, kind of like LEED, um, but very different in terms of its focus than LEED. And then a lot of our staff is focused on training and then the other end kind of supportive and marketing communications and trying to make this really mainstream market standard. And... Um, my role. Yeah, I'm associate director. As, sorry, I read my bio. Um, but most of my time at FIAS, I'm, I'm on the technical side and have worked on standards development, setting those performance metrics for the buildings um, and reviewing project uh, project submissions from, from teams trying to achieve certification. It's a pretty intensive process where you review energy models, give feedback, make sure the project is in line for certification throughout the design and construction of the project. Now I'm more so kind of oversight and organizationally um, working on data and more like handling interoperations between departments, if you will. We've grown a lot since I started at FIAS about 10 years ago. So my role has kind of changed a lot. I kind of touch every end of the organization. I don't remember exactly how you, you worded this. It was just a second ago, so I'm getting old, okay. obviously. But um, you mentioned that FIAS was a little different from LEED in, in – some ways. Can you kind of give us some idea, sure. a, little, a little more meat on the bones there? Yeah, sure. So LEED is generally the certification standard for buildings that everyone has heard of, even, you know, <laughs> your mom, your you know, everybody has heard of right. LEED. Um, so I always try to refer to it relative to LEED. So LEED is essentially a point-based rating system where you get different points for different elements of like green building. And energy might be one of those buckets. Health might be one of those buckets. But you get different points and there's different you know, ratings where you might get platinum, silver, gold, and all of that, depending on how many you add up to. And like site planning, bike racks, those things get you points. FIAS is a pass-fail standard that's really focused on energy. Um, so the kind of in the lead certification and the energy part, if you got FIAS certification, you'd get all the energy points. Um, there's also elements of the FIAS passive building standard that are related to health. Um, we use EPA and or plus as a co-requisite program for our certification. So there's a lot of things inherent to what we're doing with our certification that um, would earn you points in other places in LEED, but LEED is really zooming out, trying to look at kind of a green umbrella where FIAS is pretty focused on uh, basically making a quality, quality and healthy building with really reduced loads in, in the goal of kind of getting to total reducing total emissions, getting to net zero, that type of thing. 
um, but thoughtful design to reduce energy loads in buildings. And then we kind of tag uh, on those other programs. And do you get like a plaque on your building or mentioned somewhere? How yep. Okay. We have a so, we have a project database on our website where all the pro certified projects are listed. Um, and yeah, you once you're certified, you get a plaque. Everyone loves the plaque. <laughs> um, <laughs> how how popular is this right now? I mean, our, our lead is very popular now. Well, mm -hmm. is becoming a big deal. Um, yeah. How's where does Fias how does Fias compare to those? It's definitely not as big, but it is growing at a exponential rate. Um, so in terms of projects, we have about, I'd probably say about 1,200 projects maybe total, about half of those fully certified, the other half are in the certification process. Many of those are large or any scale of multifamily buildings. So in terms of like square footage and units, it's quite a big um, impact. I think we're at like 16 million square feet. Uh, most of that in the U.S., some of it in Canada, a little bit in Mexico. So we got a little bit of spread outside the U.S. and Canada, but mostly U.S. and Canada. But in like relative to lead, it's it's quite small. But there's there's this like certification growth chart where you can see year after year things are just doubling, and with all the different policy initiatives that are happening, writing um, writing passive house certification into stretch codes or low-income housing tax credits for multifamily. That's a big a big thing that accelerated growth. We're seeing just, like I said, exponential growth in this concept and in this certification. Interesting. Now, in your presentation, it was called Grid Building Interaction, Microgrids, and Passive Building. First, could you give us kind of a your thumbnail of what passive building is? Sure. Yeah. Um, so, Passive building or passive house, you can kind of use them interchangeably. I try to avoid the uh, using the word house because it applies to all building types, all building typologies, like these strategies apply to all buildings. So passive building is, is basically a design methodology where you use passive building principles to reduce energy use in buildings and create a comfortable, healthy, um, resilient building. And the principles kind of revolve around three different control strategies. So you have thermal control in the enclosure by super insulating or more insulation than code um, and making that insulation continuous. So focusing on minimizing or mitigating thermal bridges. Uh, you have air control in the building by um, air sealing the building. This is one of the pass fail metrics for passive house. So a, a super airtight enclosure, they must validate that with a um, infiltration testing, both pressurization and depressurization. So making the enclosure really airtight and then um, placing intentional openings in the enclosure for a balanced ventilation system with heat recovery and filtration. So you're kind of controlling um, the air that's uh, coming through the enclosure as well as the air that's coming in through this ventilation system. And then there's solar control. Um, so that's uh, basically a combination of picking the right window performance in terms of solar heat gain and the right window optimization um, for orientation, as well as the solar, or sorry, as well as the shading strategies. So allowing for solar gain when you want it and blocking it when you don't. Um, I do want to mention that passive solar and passive building is not the same thing. There's some of the same concepts, but passive building is kind of like the step above that incorporates a few more um, important strategies like the balanced ventilation. Passive solar was more a movement about 50 years ago where you would have um, a lot of uh, thermal mass and big south glass and try to just heat the building with the sun. Um, the concepts are the same, but in terms of like the balance and the optimization, we, we've come a long way since just 
wanting all of the sun all the time. That was a very heating dominated biased uh, approach. Like, like Canada, you know, northern, northern areas of the US really could take on that approach, but that doesn't work for Florida, for example. But passive building itself works everywhere. So let's get back to the presentation itself. Um, John, okay. if you could go ahead and uh, pull up slide six. I guess I, I watched it. I read through the, the, um, the, the slides, and I guess my impression was that um, the goal was to not just look at, you know, to take this moment where we're looking at the grid, we're looking at things like microgrids, we're looking at sustainability, we're looking at comfort, we're looking at, you know, all these different things, but but to also come at it from the bottom up, from the from the building side up. And yep. um, that you feel like this is a great opportunity right now for us to fix some issues that we've been dealing with for a long time and at the same time kind of do it from the bottom up instead of just top down. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's really, I, I feel that the grid and the buildings and the wires that connect them have all kind of operated in silos, not really considering the impact of one another. Um, the grid has been required basically to provide reliable, uninterrupted power service to all of these buildings, but the buildings don't necessarily think about the capacity and the infrastructure required to meet that load. And there's a lot of opportunity when you just think about, okay, what can this building do to actually, if it actually knew what was required on the other end, basically. And, and because there's a lot of things changing with the grid, which we'll get into, um, there's a lot of opportunity to just think about this as more of a holistic concept rather than like, this is our gen our power generation and this is the, the use. Usually you think about the grid as the supply side and the demand side. So what's what's generating the power and what's using the power? But those those can um, we're losing a little bit of control of the supply side with renewables, which I'll get into. Um, so we need to add a little bit more control of our demand side. And actually, before we dive into this, just to kind of reinforce passive building, could we jump to slide 32? 32, John. Yeah, okay. So I just wanted to reinforce. So we're using these passive building strategies, um, the insulation, air thermal, sorry, air control, thermal control, radiation control, to take what a typical building might look like, and this is maybe Chicago, big heating loads in the winter. This is an annual load profile. Uh, and, you know, roughly half that uh, peak cooling load in the summer. And we're, we're using passive building strategies to not only reduce those peaks, but reduce the amount of time and the amount of heating and cooling you need over the course of the year. So that's really what a passive building is doing. And I didn't, I didn't say that out loud. So I wanted to make sure you understood that concept before we talk about that into the into the whole picture with the grid so okay, i think thank you. that's helpful and i and it's it's also helpful to get the understanding that you're you're looking at changes that are occurring anyway why don't we go ahead and do them in a more coordinated way and and kind of uh allow the buildings to talk to the to to, to the grid i guess um exactly. and that way we can exchange information back and forth and do a better job of of growing this and fixing this issue, but let's go back and talk first about the grid. Yep. I think a lot of people are more familiar now with this and the fact that we have three grids, not one in the United States. Yep. yep. Yeah. So we have three different interconnects, West, East and Texas. Uh, yeah. The Texas part, I think surfaced whatever in the past few years when people are like, why is Texas on its own grid and all the issues they're having? Um, 
So they're, yeah, they're not connected. They all operate at the same frequency, but just like slightly off from one another. So it's not that we can even just connect them. You'd have to shut everything down, which can't do, <laughs> and then try to restart it all together. So they're, they're not connected, um, but you could potentially, I think, transfer power over, um, you could transfer DC power, I believe, over the lines, but we won't get into that. Um, and then the different regions of the grid are um, operated by different ISOs or independent service operators um, that basically look at the demand in that area and are responsible for meeting that. Okay, let's go to the next one, John, which is, I think, going to be 11. And here you talk about how the share of renewables is growing. Sure. Yep. Um, yeah, so right now, uh, let's see, about 60, 70%, 70, 75% of our resources are fossil fuel based or at least um, dispatchable, not renewable energy, natural gas, coal, nuclear, and the renewables share is growing significantly. And that's mostly solar and wind. Uh, the wind could be onshore, offshore, but generally a centralized, um, you know, wind farm. And the solar could be a combination of things. It could be centralized solar farms. So big, you know, big arrays of solar, community solar, things like that. It could be concentrated solar power. There's only some places where there's actually enough like ground area to do this, but there's a lot of that in like the Southwest Arizona area. And then a lot of rooftop solar. So individuals with their homes putting solar on their roof. So um, but generally it's all the solar photovoltaics um, in different flavors. Let's go to the next one, John. This is how we're looking at the seasonal load profile. And I think this is really important to some of the stuff coming up later. Yep, it is. Um, so when we look at the the whole the entire grid and the different like regions that the operators have to basically meet the load for, it's fairly predictable what the load is going to look like in the winter versus the summer. And it's also um, fairly constrained to the different resource types that are available. So in the winter, there's typically base load and intermediate load, and then a peak, maybe a morning and an evening. For the summer, there's just one big peak in the day. And the base load is generally met with coal, nuclear, and some renewables. But it's these generation resources that um, don't have flexibility in terms of their output. The output from these resources is flat um, and can't really change. It can't change like if the sun goes up or down or cloud moves, it can't change to respond to, to variables in, in weather or load. So that's just the flat load and it stays the flat load. The load following resources meet the intermediate load. This is generally natural gas. Um, CC means combined cycle. It's just a more efficient way of producing electricity from natural gas. And then some renewables like hydro, where you could consider hydropower from um, basically pump storage to be energy storage or to be dispatchable when you need it to follow when that next increase in the load happens. And then we have the peak load. And this is what makes electricity really expensive. So the peak load is um, when every building is running as high as it might be in the winter, this would be probably from heat. Um, and the peaking plants are the plants that are available and running, spinning year round, like spinning reserves, but you only actually extract electricity from them during these peaks. But we have to pay to maintain and operate these, um, even though they're rarely being used. In the summer, kind of same thing, right? And right now the US grid peaks in the summer because of the higher amount of electricity used in the summer from cooling loads. But we're gonna get into that. That's gonna change 
um, as we electrify buildings. All right, let's go to the next one, John, which I think is uh, the next slide. Okay. So Load duration curve, that's, that's a, yeah. a new term for some of our folks. Yeah, um, what we're basically looking at is the capacity. So we talked about capacity, I'm talking about the generation resources. So coal, nuclear, natural gas, renewables, hydro. Um, and the amount of capacity is like the, the output of those. Uh, so the base load capacity is used 100% of the time. Those generation resources stay at a constant output. They don't change. They're used all the time. Um, the load following capacity is used, you know, a little bit less. And during during times of higher use, there's um, or during times of higher peaks on the grid, more of it is used, but it's not used to its maximum. Meaning that if if it ran all out the capacity that we had load following, it would be too much. And then the peak load capacity is rarely used, but there's um, a good amount of that capacity requirement relative to like load following, right? So with the US grid right now, we have about two and a half times to three more generation capacity than we need if everything ran all out all the time, right? If we just said everything run or 80% or whatever, um, if we said everything run, it would be too much energy. And the reason is because we need to size the system to meet that peak. So if we ran everything, we'd have three times more than we needed. And if you think about buildings, the way to connect this to a, a building crowd is you think about a heating system and you model a building and calculate a peak load. And then you add some sort of redundancy, right? To meet, make sure that peak load is met. You increase the system size and the peak load is only happening for you know X amount of hours per year, maybe a couple of days per year is that peak load happening. That's happening at the grid scale. So for 363 days of the year, we don't need that peak load capacity. Same way as like a heating system. We don't need that peak capacity. But when you consider how that has to multiply out by all the infrastructure required on the grid, it's a pretty significant deal. It's not just, you know, I have a 12 kBTU instead of nine or whatever, 18 instead of 24 in my building. It's multiplied across the infrastructure in the, the US grid. I guess this really catches your attention because we're generating two and a half to three times more than what we need. If we could figure out a way to kind of balance that out, that's where the low hanging fruit to some degree, maybe it's not low hanging in that it's not as easy as it sounds, but how we cut the amount of uh, capacity in half and, and better even out what, how we use that capacity that would cut emissions tremendously real quickly. Right. So we're not, we're not generating that much, but we have the capacity and infrastructure to be able to do that. Correct. Which okay. is the money, right? It's not necessarily the emissions, but it's definitely the, the cost. The cost. Is, okay. So I, I should be looking at that more now, but we also do generate more than we need probably. Well, I guess I don't know. That's a good, that's a question. Are we not necessarily? Um, okay. Yeah. Not necessarily. Uh, generally the, there's a demand on the grid and then the load, the generation capacity meets that. Um, what we are having happen, and I'm not sure if we're getting to it later is there is renewable energy that's being overgenerated and can't be used due to some constraints. Um, I don't know if we're gonna talk about curtailment later. Maybe I should hold that or talk about it now, but um, we have renewable energy that's available and either due to transmission congestion or being, uh, meaning there's not enough wires between the centralized renewables and the load to get it to the load or the base load capacity can't move down that we have to curtail this emission-free 
generation resource and have to just rely on keeping you know the coal or the nuclear running. All right, here's a question that I, I'm not sure if we got time to answer it or not, but I'm going to give it a shot, okay? Um, oh, boy. Climate adaptation of the grid. What are projected needs to deal with hotter climate and worse heat waves plus electrification and population growth? Um, yeah, so <laughs> this is kind of what I'm going to get into. I don't think heat waves are going to be necessarily our problem. I think heating loads are going to be our problem. Um, the okay. U.S. as we electrify buildings, the heat load, it's in general as a continent, the heat load um, is going to be greater than the cooling load even during heat waves. So yes, we will need it in that transition time. Yeah, we don't necessarily even have enough capacity to manage the heat waves. Electrification, exactly electrifying water heating and and heating loads. The, I mean, a solution is what I'm talking about with passive building. We're cutting these well, loads we, in half before we electrify. So maybe we get to that. Yeah, and I think what we do is we keep that in mind as we go through the rest of this presentation. Thank you, Tom. Right. All right, let's let's go to the next one, uh, John. I think it's the very next slide. You know, meeting the daily electric load. Sure. So um, basically, this is just trying to outline how, as the load increases, more and more expensive resources have to be called upon. So resource generation capacity bids into the market. Renewables are basically free after they're installed um, because the, you know, the fuel, the sun, the wind is free. So those are generally called upon first, and then the less expensive to more expensive are called upon. So that last like kilowatt hour of the day or megawatt in this chart is the most expensive. All right, next, John. Uh, so similarly, like the uh, the cost of electricity is a very dynamic thing. Many of us have flat rates because that's essentially insurance to the um, insurance to us to to shield us from these spikes um, in cost of electricity. But it really, at every moment, the cost of delivering electricity to a building is different based on the grid mix happening at that time. And you can see this chart on the right. As the demand increases, that vertical line, the cost of the supply increases, and it's not linear, right? Like as you, when you get to a certain point, you're jumping and jumping to more expensive resources, and that's where you're getting into those peaker plants, those more expensive, um, yeah, those more expensive generation. And if we do certain building right, we can help reduce that at least. Right. So you're bringing the demand down, or you're making the demand able to see what the um, like what the market price of the supply is at that time. So if the building could see, you see that chart on the right, the, the red line, if the building could see what the price was at each time, it could respond to when it wants to use a certain load at different times. Gotcha. Yeah, that is what we'll get into with, with GEB technology. Let's go to the next one, John. Okay, this I find this interesting. I'm, I'm I'm not sure I quite understand it, but go ahead. Tell us okay. what, what we're looking at yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. Marginal carbon emissions concept. Yeah, so we just looked at how cost is different, right, at all times. Um, that's because the generation mix, the resources we're using to meet a certain load on the grid, changes hourly, right? So depending on that mix, the emissions associated with that mix also changes. So what this chart is showing is the months of the year across the top and the hours in the day across the vertical. And certain hours of the year have different grid mixes than others. So red hours have dirtier grid mixes than green hours. 
it's basically in the, in the easiest way to explain it. That's generally, at least for a market like Chicago, that this one is showing, um, there's either a higher peak or there's less, you know, resource availability. I'm guessing the the summer wind is what makes this green block here. We have a lot of wind en energy in Illinois. Okay. Um, that's what makes this summer wind block, uh, the summer block at like 5 p.m. and later, you know, overnight wind greener. But basically, some hours using electricity is cleaner than others in terms of carbon emissions. Why is November? I'm sorry. Oh. <laughs> no, Why is okay. November so high as opposed to December, January, February, your coldest months? I'm not sure. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. All right. Let's move to the next one, John, which is going to be a typical simplified source energy accounting. So now, <laughs> okay, I got you. Uh, but yeah. maybe the audience doesn't. All right. Tell us what this is representing here, Lisa. Yeah. So we just saw how dynamic the the grid hours are in terms of actual emissions. But generally, we just say, ah, there's a source factor for electricity, and this is it. And that's this brown blob. Right. We're just like every hour is the same. So everything's the and, same, whether we like it or not. <laughs> yeah. And I, I should point out because you asked about November versus, you know, the summer in yes. grids like Illinois, when there's not a ton of renewables, like the hour to hour discrepancy, like the red to the green might not be that significant right now. But okay. as we integrate more and more renewables, it's going to be very significant. So like somewhere like California, where there's a lot of renewables, there are definitely much cleaner hours than uh, dirtier hours. So um, we're really like at the the forefront of that um, as we, we only have 14% renewables by 2030 or something. This is um, our demand curve in New yes. England. This is an ISO yeah. stands for independent service operator. So this is Thank one of you. those, we saw the graphical regions in the beginning. This is one of those in the Northeast. Um, so this is just pulling a random day um, this was right before this presentation was given at summer camp. So I just pulled a random day, nothing special about it, uh, where you can see the forecasted load on the grid. The ISOs have this always, at this website, you can go and look at any day. You can see the actual load on the grid. It looks like those seasonal load profiles, right, that we saw for the summer, a peak right around the afternoon, and then what actually cleared the market. Um, and if you, so this is just the demand on the grid. Next. John? And um, you can see then also not, not just the demand on the grid, but what they used, what the ISO used to meet that demand. So you can see those flat line base load at the bottom, the nuclear, the, um, the renewables, right, and the hydro. And then you can see the natural gas is the load following. So basically what I'm trying to represent here is this, this same exact type of thing happens day after day. The resources are used in a very predictable way based on the way they're able to respond to variances in, in building demand. And natural gas is there for the peak because that's easier to ramp up and down. Is that accurate? Exactly. Is... Exactly. Okay. Those are, yep. They can respond right. to changes. In mode. Let's, yep. let's go one more, John. I think that wraps up this section and then we'll take a break for halftime and come back in and talk about how the grid is changing. Sure. Uh, so this third one is newer. Uh, I think this was actually the first time I discovered this being on the ISO's website was for this presentation. Um, and this is showing the actual load that the ISO thinks happened on that day. You can see kind of the faded load that the grid saw, that the ISO saw. But the orange line is the actual load they think they had based on behind the meter solar. 
So what this means is there's a significant amount of customers out there with solar on their roofs that is offsetting some of their energy use directly in the building before the grid has to supply the rest. Um, so that's, the grid can't, the ISO can't actually see that when it's behind the meter. If it's in front of the meter, that means the utility can see it. If it's behind the meter, it means um, they can't. Um, so this is part of the challenge that we're going to get into. Okay. Let's stop here. We're going to thank our sponsors for halftime. We'll be back with the second half. We've got a very interesting presentation with Lisa White, the Associate Director of FIAS. Our marquee sponsor is First On Site, your trusted, full-service disaster recovery and property restoration company at firstonsite.com. Our association sponsors are ACGIH, Advancing Careers of Professionals in Environmental Health, Industrial Hygiene, and Safety, Interested in Defining Their Science, ACGIH.org, AIHA, Healthy Workplaces, A Healthier World, AIHA.org, The Cleaning Industry Research Institute, See More Deeply Through Science and Research, CIRI science.org the iicrc a nonprofit standards development and certifying body for the cleaning and restoration industry iicrc.org industry sponsors are aeml laboratories free shipping great pricing same day results with no rush fee aemlinc.com particles plus Feature-rich particle counters and air quality instrumentation. Count on us. Particlesplus.com. TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for monitoring indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations. TSI.com. Sunbelt Rentals. Availability, reliability, and ease for all your IAQ and restoration needs at sunbeltrentals.com. April Air, healthy air, healthy home, April, A-I-R-E.com. And Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online magazine for industry professionals and consumers, healthyindoors.com. All right, Lisa, let's jump right back into it. The grid is changing. Slide 21, John. What do we mean by the grid is changing, Lisa? Yeah, so... Uh, basically the grid hasn't been touched or redesigned in probably the 100 plus years that it's been around. Um, so there's kind of three main focuses and uh, one of the viewers pointed out electrification. So let's start there. So uh, more things that we're using are being electrified. And a lot of this is due to this like movement toward decarbonization. If you electrify systems, then you can power them by renewable energy and use less carbon emissions. So we're electrifying vehicles, and electrifying buildings for the most part. And buildings, most of the gas loads are heating and hot water that are being electrified or cooking as well. That's that's more minor. Uh, so they're electrifying things and this is changing that seasonal load profile on the grid and changing the capacity that the grid needs. We're also decentralizing our resources. So I mentioned uh, PV on rooftops. So generally right now we have generation, transmission lines, and then a building, right, using a load. And you, it's pretty predictable. One goes from one direction to the other. Um, and the generation is always on one end and controlled by the central ISO. Hmm. Now we have generation happening with consumers. So they're being prosumers, I think is what it's called. Uh, so they're generating energy all over. And it's not just the, um, it's not just the rooftop solar, but there's community solar and there's 
smaller scale capacity and generation than we had before with these just centralized large um, fossil fuel based uh, power plants. And, right. and then digitalizing. So kind of the whole world is digitalizing. It's not just the grid, but the grid is behind uh, in terms of that. So uh, yeah, it, basically newer grids or newer technologies are able to add signals or add responses and um, they're smart grid technology. It's, it's getting out there where you can maybe on a transmission line, see if there's going to be a fault or see where a transmission line is down or, you know, preventative maintenance type thing, using kind of the technology that we've been using for years with computers and other things into the grid. Okay, John, next. So now we talk about how the demand is changing too. Here's the demand trend. Yeah, so I showed the New England ISO before. That's kind of an example of what the typical grid looks like. Not a lot of renewables. If you look at California, you can see the load is fairly similar. Same. This is the same day as the New England ISO um, graph. Demand fairly similar. If you go to the next one, I think it'll show uh, the net. Oh, no, then the renewables trend in California. Renewables is next, right? Okay. There you go. Go back to the renewables, John. There we go. Renewables trend looks like this. That's interesting. Yeah, uh, this is when the sun comes up. It's not a shocker. Uh, there's a lot of incentive for solar energy in California, and they have a lot of sun, right? So they have a lot of solar energy in the middle of the day. So then if you go to the next, you can see the net demand on the grid from that solar. So what the, the purple line is now what the grid is responsible for meeting, or the ISO, the California, they have their own ISO, the CAISO. Um, and the challenge here is not that, you know, there's, well, there's a lot of renewable energy at certain points in the day. So those are those green points where that renewables trend popped up, where the solar is really high. Those are the green clean hours of the day. And what's happening is when the sun goes down, the grid is now responsible for ramping up to meet what the load would be um, at that hour. When the sun goes down, the renewables aren't available. And you can see that three hour ramp. We talked about how different generation resources can only respond so quickly you need certain resource types to be able to meet that ramp. And as we add more and more solar, this is called the duck curve. Um, the belly of that duck in the middle right here in the around noon, that keeps getting lower and lower. And that ramp at the end of the day keeps getting higher and higher as we add more solar, exactly right there. Um, so that ramp is the challenge, not just the ramp down, or not just the ramp up, but also the ramp down. So basically being able to respond to large amounts of solar energy in the middle of the day, the grid has to be able to have the resources to do that. And that's that's a lot of the challenge. I think that's probably a huge challenge for, um, like I'm in a Somerset Rural Electric here, it's, which is a little different than, you know, some of the others. And um, it seems that would be a huge challenge for, for them is to try and try and get those lines closer together, I guess. But uh, yeah. yeah. Let's go to the next one, John. Transmission, here's another issue. It's it's not just the grid is changing, there's transmission congestion. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, so this is from that same California ISO, same day, and it shows you uh, where the um, con congestion is happening on the wires, basically on the transmission lines, and how much renewable energy is curtailed each hour. It means renewable energy that's being produced that can't be used by buildings. So you can see it follows that same solar path, right? That yellow big blob in the middle of the day. And most of it is this economic local, this green, which means um, 
there's a market dispatch over generators with economic bids to mitigate local congestion. So I mentioned that the renewables always bid the lowest in the market because they're free, right? Almost free. They're very inexpensive to run. Uh, but there's local congestion on the transmission lines, meaning there's not enough actual capacity on the wires to bring the load, the solar load to the demand. So the, the solar energy is being produced, but it's being curtailed. And those buildings are just using whatever other generation resources are available. And this is not a unique day either. I just picked the same day. This is happening day after day, sunny day in California. And you may see days where electricity prices go negative. This is, this is why. It's better or it's cheaper for utilities to pay you to use energy at that time because there's excess energy. Um, well, this is one reason why. Um, one reason why that happens. So, you know, I'm just thinking, I'm sitting here thinking, I'm so glad I am not in charge of a, an electric utility out there today or the, the transmission or the the grid itself. I mean, and and with the way it's set up, it's a bunch of small kind of, uh, what do you call them, local organizations? I forget what they're called, but there's a bunch of them. And there's no real overarching, or is there some overarching group looking over the whole thing? Yeah, there's there's um, FERC. Uh, there's there's regulation bodies. I wouldn't say there's necessarily one organization looking over the operations, but there are regulation bodies for the grid. Um, but no, it's a it's a big challenging system. Um, I'm not gonna say I envy that as well, and I don't operate the grid either. So. Um, I'm just trying to come at it from the building angle and understanding the challenges that we're having right now with very little renewable on the grid, renewables on the grid. And uh, through what we're doing at FIAS, we're trying to add, we're trying to reduce our impact as buildings on the grid. And we're encouraging people to add rooftop solar. We're encouraging people to invest in renewables because we want to reduce the emissions of the electricity using the grid that they're using in the building. Um, but we need to understand the other side of that too. And there might be other things we can do, such as grid enabled loads, which we'll hopefully get to, um, that can reduce emissions that aren't just adding more renewables. Adding more renewables is great, but we also need to be able to respond to use those renewables when they're available. All right. Let's go to slide 29, John. Zero impact, zero grid resilience, zero operating email. This is where we want to go, I guess. Well, let's, what do we talk about here? Net zero buildings, electrification movement, and dispatchable fossil fuel power generation. What's dispatchable? Yeah, so this is kind of the main areas I would focus on from a building perspective of the decarbonization movement. So uh, electrify everything, the electrification, I think you guys got that. Net zero buildings is basically um, offsetting as much energy as you're using on an annual basis with renewables. Many of people are doing this with photovoltaics on their roof. And then the third thing that's happening is dispatchable fossil fuel generation shifting to variable renewable resources. So dispatchable in this context is a resource that you can say, hey, turn up, turn down. I have control over the fuel. Um, variable renewable, obviously, we don't have control over the, the sun, the wind. It's fairly predictable, but it's not necessarily controllable. So we have that shift of being able to control the supply at all times to, being, to having less control over the supply of our power if we're shifting to renewables, right? And there's a, a range of net zero buildings. Um, there's net zero ready. There's net zero buildings. Right. There's there's 
net zero design buildings, there's net zero operating buildings. Can you yep. talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so let's start with net zero ready. That's kind of the, the lowest here, which is basically just having conduit or being ready to install PV on a roof. So um, you design the building and in some year in the future, you can put photovoltaics on the roof and net out your annual energy use with, with solar. Um, and this is where DOE has been really, mm -hmm. I think, placing a lot of emphasis there and, and trying to yep. get new construction, at least net zero ready. Right, right. The zero energy ready home program. Right. Um, and then zero energy, it, it depends. There's a lot of definitions, but generally it's just designing a building where you're offsetting as much as you're using on an annual basis. With FIAS, we have a zero energy certification. And first you have to reduce all the loads in the building. We think that's super, super, super critical to going to net zero. You need to first cut all the loads using those passive building strategies, those charts we saw with the pushing down the space heating, space cooling then add renewables to get to zero if you want to do zero. Um, so then from that, other organizations do design versus verified. So design means you calculated it in a model, right? You calculated buildings energy use, you calculated the PV output, and those are at least equal or the PV outputs more. And verified means it's operated generally for a year, showing that it's produced more energy on site than it's used over the course of a year. Now, I noticed that you are a trainer in Woofy, um, the yeah. passive energy modeling software training. I've heard a lot of uh, uh, discussion about the fact that, you know, modeling doesn't necessarily give you what happens in the real world. What's your experience been? Has the, has the modeling worked yeah. fairly well? It actually has. Yeah. Um, so, We've gotten data back from a fair amount of projects and we're finding across the board, all climate zones, all building types. We don't have a huge data set, but uh, it's roughly within 7% uh, modeling versus measured, which is pretty good. Obviously there's some that are off by 20%, uh, you know, some that are better performing better than the model by 10%. It depends, right? But over the across the board, it's, it's working pretty well and it's pretty consistent. Uh, yeah, so we do, these are PS certified projects that I'm talking about comparing to models. So there is a ton of oversight on reviewing the energy model, making sure it actually matches the plans. And then okay. there's some testing required when the building's finally built and you have to put that back into the model. So we're, we're making a decent amount of effort to make sure the model is actually matching what's built and putting a decent amount of effort into quality assurance during the construction process to make sure the design matches what's built. So it's a, it's a really quality assured process. So I think that's a lot of the reason the models match the buildings pretty well. Okay. John, let's jump to slide 43. Not all kilowatt hours used are produced equally. Just, I think that's an important point. There we go. Yeah. So we talked about um, net zero and how it's like over the course of the year, I am using less than I'm producing over the course of the year. But we have to think about when energy is being produced and when energy is being used, if that net zero is actually, you know, valid. It's not like the building is, so you were talking about the other side where it's like, it doesn't mean it's zero emissions. It doesn't mean it's not using the grid, like this net zero concept. It means over the course of the year. So you could be using energy during the red hours and producing energy during the green hours. So if you were to net out those numbers, it wouldn't quite be net zero. And you could be producing energy when it's not needed as much. And that's what you're you're trying to do is kind of match that up better. 
Yeah, or at least, you know, change the accounting or use more energy during the green hours and shift energy away from the red hours, right? And, and enable the building to know what's a green hour versus what's a red hour. Would the other or be to get better ways of uh, storing energy? Yeah, absolutely. Energy storage would help for sure, um, especially if you have on-site PV. So you can store energy or store excess PV during the day, excess solar energy during the day, and then use it throughout the night. Absolutely would help. Really, storage is just another mechanism for grid integrated buildings, which we haven't quite uh, gotten into yet, but um, enables you to run away. Yeah. Uh, all right, John, let's go to the next slide. And it's uh, basically, I think we, we covered this. We're talking about yeah. how much instead of when. Right, right. Shifting to One no more. green hours versus red hours. One yeah, more, John. So he- now we're there. All right, here's your big topic grid interactive efficient building. Right. Talk to us about this, Lisa. Yeah, so uh, the acronym is uh, GEB. Uh-oh. Go back one more. Go back. There we go. And it's enabling the building loads to be smart and responsive to signals. So right now, the building just uses you know electricity whenever it needs electricity. But if it knew the red hours, knew the green hours, knew the price signal, the building could actually shift, uh, shape that load, right? It could say... Um, you know, maybe I pre-cool or preheat my space if I know it's cleaner energy in this time, this hour block than this hour block. Uh, so it's really, it's using the the digitization aspect of the grid changing to make the the building grid interactive. And the efficient and, part's really important. FIAS does that, but it's really important to have an efficient building to enable these, these things to work. And is anybody doing this now? There are some. It's it's very early in stages. The DOE did release a GEB roadmap. There's a couple case studies. I can't say there's any FIAS projects that I'm aware of. We're working on it, um, trying to kind of combine these two. And that's really, really where you see the benefit, uh, combining the passive building enclosure with these techniques of shedding and shifting loads, because the passive building enclosure is basically another form of energy storage, um, thermal energy storage, rather than like battery or electrical energy storage where it's really easy to shift loads from green to from the green hours to the red hours. And uh, interesting. Sorry. Next, other way around. next slide. Right, green. Yeah. This is what it looks like at the building level. Right. The different types of things you could integrate with the controls. So there's this control system telling you when to use energy and when not to price signal on the grid would work as well. It's very closely associated with emissions, but you could change your HVAC, change your set points, dim your lighting. Maybe some plug loads, like phantom loads, you could turn off. Um, PV and storage and EV charging. If you knew, if your EV is going to be plugged in all day, but um, you maybe it could only, you know, it only needs six hours to charge. Let's have it pick those six green hours, right? Instead of just right when it's plugged in, because maybe those are red hours. So all of these different controls. And this is um, generally at the building level and the utility um, could control that. And, and this would... Also, I think it could be set up in a way where the consumer could take a more active role in trying to reduce their costs even. Absolutely. And that's a big reason. Right now, it's hard because the difference in costs, a lot of people have flat rate electricity costs. So that's one thing. When you have time of use costs, that absolutely you can save money by shifting energy use to different hours of of cheaper electricity. Mm -hmm. Is that where we're headed? Are we going to see time of use costs? I hope yeah. so. Um, I really hope so. You can a lot of 
utilities, you can pick it. I'm with ComEd. We could pick time of use, energy costs. Uh, they don't care. There's no, <laughs> there's no like um, nothing that would set them back from doing that because you're just paying whatever it costs them, right? Okay. Um, so, yeah. Interesting. Let's go to the next one, John. G GB Gridner Echo. Wait, uh, when it looks like load shifting and shedding. I just thought maybe we'd touch on this real quick since we're running a little low. Yeah, no problem. Uh, so this is really important. So this is some of the, the toolkit measures for a grid interactive efficient building, GEB, that's what it's called. So load shifting, if we look at an hour of the day, is basically taking a load that needs to occur and shifting it to a different time of the day. Uh, so this could be pre-cooling or preheating a space. Uh, if you know that there's going to be a peak later in the day, move it to the morning, say more of a flat load or moving from basically red hours to green hours. This could also be appliances, uh, your dishwasher, running your dishwasher, running your clothes washer, you know, things that need to happen, but don't need to necessarily happen at that time. Um, and then load shedding is actually just removing or shedding a load during a peak. So this could also be space conditioning. This is probably almost always space conditioning or lighting dimming where you're, you're peaking in a building and you're like, okay, I'm going to turn my thermostat back. Uh, and shed the, or turn my heating system off, turn my cooling system off to shed the load at that time because it's about to hit a really expensive or really high carbon emissions peak. And that's what passive buildings are really good at doing, shedding loads. Okay. Uh, we, we've done a lot of resiliency studies where you can turn, it can be without heat or cooling for mostly heat um, for days and, and remain survivable. So a few hours, even on turning a heating system off in a passive building, even in somewhere like Chicago, not a big deal in terms of comfort. So really inherent quality of passive, yeah. If, if it's built right in the first place, let's go to the next one, John. This is where you kind of tie together GE, Jeb and passive yep. building. Yep, so generally we have the power flow going one direction and um, it's based on whatever the customer load is saying it needs. So GEB could be the grid. If you look on the left, the grid, the grid stress is really high. They're peaking. So they would signal to the customer to reduce the load and the building would respond and reduce the load. So there's some sort of signal happening from the grid to the building. Generally, I think we skipped this slide earlier in the typical grid, it would be the customer load, that top arrow, just telling the grid to turn up. And even if it's all the way red like this, it needs to turn up even more, right? It needs to get more and more peak and the customer doesn't see anything from the grid in terms of the stress signal or the price. All right, let's go to um, slide 52, John. I think this is important. And then after this, Lisa, I'm going to break for our, we do what we call a roundup. Can you stay an extra five minutes? I think we can get this all in if you can. No problem. Yep. The peak uh, is changing. Winter is coming, Lisa. What do you yeah, mean? So so we kind of talked about this earlier where the, the peak on the grid right now is in the summer due to space conditioning loads, cooling loads, but we're starting to electrify buildings. We're starting to electrify heating loads. So the peak is shifting um, from the summer to the winter. And if you think about a typical building, I made up numbers here, the peak is four. And then if you use passive building strategies, you can get the peak down to two, right? So if we, we think about the capacity needed to meet a peak of four versus a peak of two, uh, it's, it's at least double plus redundancy and reliability factors. So almost that factor of two and a half to three that we talked about with capacity versus peak. Interesting. All right, let's go to the roundup, John.
The Roundup is brought to you by April Air, providing healthy humidity, ventilation, and air purity solutions for new and existing homes. April Air, healthy air, healthy home at aprilaire.com. Okay, hey, John, can you pull up slide 58? And while you're doing that, I want to ask Cliff the Z-Man. Cliff, any you have any follow-ups or any any questions? Yeah, I do, actually. Something interesting happened earlier this year. I think it was probably driven by the war in Ukraine and, uh, you know, energy uh, exports from Russia, you know, being reduced. But that young gal, Greta Thunberg, and, uh, you know, she actually called for Germany to not shut down their nuclear power. So I guess what my question is, what's the role of nuclear in this? Because it seems like it's a pretty simple, viable option that, you know, you don't need batteries. I mean, if you can make it cheap enough, you don't need batteries to store it. Uh, mm-hmm. You don't need all the, you know, voltaic systems up on roofs and, 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 and yeah. so on and so forth. Why not nuclear? Yeah, I, I wouldn't necessarily say um, no nuclear. So nuclear is kind of in between this renewables and the fossil fuel base because it doesn't have carbon emissions, but there's still waste and there's still nuclear waste, whereas renewables, there's not um, this very toxic waste. But nuclear, we couldn't run on nuclear alone because nuclear cannot respond to big changes or big dips in energy use. So it wouldn't be a good resource that could com- a company like a, a solar um, solar system or wind because of how spiky that is, right? And because of how much that changes, nuclear just really wants to be a flat load. Uh, but I think it's going to play a large role in meeting that base load of the grid as we transition some of those other resources, coal and natural gas off the grid. Nuclear can stay there and meet the base load and not actually have carbon emissions associated with it. Um, the other thing that's that's has to be considered is like the lifetime of these power plants. So in terms of finance or financing them, they're generally on 40 year cycles and a lot of them are, are retiring or getting up to recycle or um, getting up to expiring. So you need to either need to reinvest for the next 40 years or retire the plant. So they're at kind of a critical moment where um, they have to make that decision. And it's really, really costly to put that investment. to have that around the next 40 years or you retire it. So I, I don't know the answers, but I, I don't think it's a, going to be going away immediately. Interesting. Let's go to the microgrid, slide 58, John, because this is something we hear a lot about, Lisa, microgrids, and and you have a little different look at it, a little way of looking at it. Why don't you go ahead and talk to us about this one? Sure. Um, So a microgrid is basically a cluster of buildings that are GEBS or have grid-enabled loads. And instead of just being the central generation resource to the building, there's interconnectivity between the building and communication between the buildings. And there's this, or in a central system that can control that. So that uh, it's called a microgrid manager. So that that knows basically what are the red hours, what are the green hours, what's the cost, um, what's the generation resources available, what's the energy storage. So a microgrid is a combination of these buildings with these smart loads, some sort of energy generation, some sort of energy storage, ideally renewable energy generation and energy storage. And then this kind of optimizer that's saying, I have this kilowatt hour available. Do I meet this building load? Do I store it? You know, is every, is every building satisfied? Or they don't have energy available and maybe it taps into the storage capacity or they're connected to the main grid. So maybe then it pulls from the main grid during those times. 
but it's really taking smaller parts of the grid and making them smarter um, and optimizing within little chunks of the grid. Is there anywhere we're doing this now? Yeah, there definitely are some. Uh, I think microgrids have existed for a while with the military or things um, related to like defense just for security. Um, but there are places, I think in California that are doing this. There's a lot of pilot projects. I believe there's one in Maryland. Um, I could try to think of this. There's one in Chicago, actually at IIT, our campus here um, in Chicago, small microgrid oh. for a campus. It's it's more common within campuses as well, like university campuses where they'll generate energy and have like thermal energy uh, networks or gas or steam systems. It's similar to that. What about right, so some of these large, like Twitter and Facebook and Meta or whatever they are? Do any of them, are any of them trying to work on a microgrid for their own? I have no idea. Um, okay. <laughs> I I would imagine eventually, um, because that just seems that that would be the way that type of company techies would go. And, yeah. and they, it makes a lot of sense, um, especially companies that have committed to different carbon, carbon emission drawdown, you know, goals. Or mean right. you know certain reduction reductions in emissions if they can do that on their campus and figure out how to fully utilize renewable resources, um, that would be a big step. Interesting, John. Let's go to slide sixty-five and, and just kind of quickly review the microgrid benefits here. Uh, so we talked about transmission congestion and the the wires, right, and those not being able to carry the load sometimes. So microgrids bring the story bring the generation closer to the load. So we need less updates in the transmission infrastructure. Um, if the grid goes down, the main grid goes down, generally there's also an option or a disconnect between the microgrid and the grid for the microgrid to island. Um, that reminds me of another microgrid. There's a community in Florida that is a microgrid community and they were nice. fine. Yeah, yeah I saw, saw that. that. Yeah, throughout Very that, this, yeah, this recent hurricane. So that's a huge opportunity for resilience. Um, and microgrids in general, huge opportunity for resilience, having all these different little pockets rather than having a central system that's vulnerable to weather and climate um, and, you know, natural disasters. Well, and um, maybe terrorism too, right? Is it Absolutely. National okay. security issues for sure. Absolutely. Right. Uh, making, right. yeah, more than one large target, right? Little splitting things up. Um, so improved renewable resource utilization, uh, having that optimization within this little um, group or little grid allows you to utilize the, the renewables when it's available more than we're, be, we're able to do on the large grid. Um, and I mentioned optimizing smaller areas of the grid, but this is also alleviating the stress on the large grid. We talked about that peak and all the capacity, and then the fact that that could double, triple with electric vehicles and electrification of buildings. We, we're going to run into capacity issues very quickly. Um, so if we can help alleviate the stress and the capacity needed on the central grid by optimizing little pieces at a time, um, it's a big, big benefit. And the last one um, I personally am very kind of excited about is energy independence. So allowing for communities to have independence and no vulnerability to fuel prices from wherever your fuel sources is. You mentioned the war. Um, in Europe and the vulnerability to being cut off from a fuel supply and how greatly that impacts a country or community. Um, being able to generate and use your own energy on site and reduce that vulnerability to energy pricing or energy sources is just, is just huge um, to me, not just for 
you know, less cost, but also just general control of power, right, across the world. So I, I, I'm really excited about that piece of it, being able to harness free solar or wind energy and communities Absolutely. being able to power on that. Yeah. John, let's go to 67. These are more proposed solutions on optimization at each level now. So you're kind of tying things together here, I believe. Yep. Yep. Sorry, this is a long presentation. Um, <laughs> no problem. So passive building optimizes at the building level. Reduce the loads, use the passive strategies, right? And it also not just reduces the loads, but reduces the renewable capacity required to meet that load. Um, then you make those loads smart. Whatever loads you have left with the passive building, make them smart, enable those loads or that demand, the load or the demand to align with when the supply is available, ideally the clean supply. And then the microgrid is taking a bunch of those grid-enabled smart passive buildings and then um, optimizing the supply and the demand, maximizing the use of that renewable infrastructure and minimizing total emissions. Uh, this is how I look at it. I will say microgrids in general aren't only designed to reduce emissions or maximize resource availability of renewables. A lot of them are for security and resilience. Um, that's a main motivator for all the ones that exist today, to my knowledge. Um, but I think it's a really great opportunity to be able to harness and um, kind of harden more renewables, meaning increase the utilization factor of renewables. Next slide. I think we had a little more. Okay, so this kind of is the uh, the visual of it, huh? <laughs> yeah, it's a lot going on here. Um, but basically, this is trying to show that there will be a digital connection between these things, um, where there's signals throughout either the storage, the generation. There could be a virtual market where you could bid into the market and say, I'm willing to turn my thermostat off, and that will reduce my peak by whatever, one kilowatt. And I can bid that into the market at a cost. Um, and actually the grid the in, independent service operator could call on you to do that in the same way they'd call on um, more natural gas to ramp up, right? So there's this like interconnected market where the demand enabled, um, the grid enabled demand can actually be part of the generation or used in the same way. Um, so the communicate, smart communication between everything can really optimize the whole picture. And right now we don't have this. And let's finish with 73, which is kind of, you're tying it all together. Once again, the ripple effects of conservation. Yeah, this I like to talk so about this. so sweet. <laughs> I like to like, talk about this. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, it's like, you know, people wonder about, you know, using less energy, you know, and, and the first thing you've got to do is concentrate on on using less energy, not using cheaper energy. And and I think this is kind of where you're headed, in, but on a bigger scale. Right, right. So I always like to point this out because there is a ripple effect of conservation beyond simple payback in buildings. So often we think about, okay, I put this level of investment in conserving energy in my building and it's going to pay back over time because this is what electricity costs, right? That's a general, that's how we think about how do I invest? Like, because I'll save over time. Great. But if you think beyond the building, right? And we think about this renewable energy transition, we're adding more renewables to meet that load. We're adding energy storage to um, make that renewable energy more dispatchable or make it available when we need it. And then we also have to have transmission that carries the renewable energy to and from the building. Um, if you reduce that first, the building energy load by 40% by in this case, which is typical of a passive building, 
you also reduce the renewables needed by 40%, the energy storage capacity needed by 40%, and the transmission capacity needed by 40%, not to mention other things. But this ripples through the system. When you start with looking at just reducing the demand side, it ripples all the way through and saves a lot more than just, yeah, I saved this on my utility bill. It's a whole, it's a system-wide um, effect. Fantastic. Lisa, that was excellent. And we did it in an hour and 10 minutes. And I think right. once we make a few edits, we might have it down to an hour and eight. Uh, it was <laughs> wonderful. And we did more than what you did at summer camp. So somehow we pulled it together. Thank yeah, you awesome. for joining us. Um, you, Cliff, before we go, any final thoughts, questions for Lisa? No, I'm good. Thank you, John. Lisa, Thank I just you want to give you my last question I give everyone. And, and, and that is, is there anything we missed that you'd like to add? Any final thoughts? Um, kind of, but I'm not sure I can add it. Uh, we talked about the winter, um, the winter peak, and I just want to point this out once more. We looked at the one building of a winter peak going from four to two with passive buildings. I want to make sure people understand that when you start to group this into more and more buildings, that, um, capacity requirement is multiplied. And then when you make those loads smart with the passive buildings, you can, basically exponentially reduce the grid capacity needed to meet the same buildings. Once you reduce the load first and then make the load smart, there's this like exponential effect or synergy between first doing the passive buildings, then making the load smart, then managing the loads between the buildings. And in this presentation, I think I showed it going from 36 down to three in terms of like the peak on the grid at that time, just by tapping into each thing individually, it becomes greater than the sum of the parts. Um, so that I I want to make sure that's a takeaway because I think it's really important and it's a really big place where passive building plays a role. Thinking big, Lisa. Thinking big. I love it. Um, thank you so much for joining us. I'd love to get you back sometime and just go into a little more detail about passive house and and you know fees and and the Absolutely. requirements and so on and why you have those requirements and uh, we'd love to get you back. This is Radio Joe saying thanks to Lisa White. My co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. John, you got to have faith at the controls. Uh, most importantly, our growing audience and sponsors, we really appreciate. By the way, oh, next week we've got a good one. Dr. Joe Allen will be here. We're going to talk about some revisions to his book and, and get into the White House IAQ Summit and some other things. So please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening.